Let us pray. God, take our ears and hear through them, and take our minds and think through them, and take our hearts and set them on fire for Christ's sake, we pray. Amen. So I get a lot of invitations uh, to be friends. The invitations I get these days, though, are different from the ones I got when I was younger, when I was much younger. Back in elementary school, I think it must have been second grade, and I don't know if this happens still, I don't know if maybe it happened to you when you were younger, but notes used to be passed in class, and every now and then I would get one of those notes. And usually it came, there was a girl that was kind of sweet on me because I was a pretty cute kid back then. <laughs> but the note uh, would say, will you be my friend? There was a box to check for yes, a box to check for no, and then there was either a penny or a nickel taped to it because back then my friendship came pretty cheap, I guess. So I still get notes, and, and I don't mean social media notes. I don't mean, you know, requests to be a friend on Facebook. I get notes in the mail, and I bet a lot of you get notes too. I get notes asking me to be a friend of the Columbia Gorge, to be a friend of Mount Tabor, to be a friend of the Bancroft Library at the University of California, to be a friend of Cal Athletics, to be a friend of Sabeel, to be a friend of the earth. What's funny is one of these invitations still comes with a nickel tape to it, which is no more effective now than it was back then. Uh, most of them instead ask me to give, and friendship is a little more spendy these days. It's $25 or $100 or $1,000 or as much money as I could possibly give to them. So I've been thinking about friendship on this, on this larger scale, right? So this fall we've talked about being friends with God, deeply spiritual relationship. We've talked about being friends with one another, so deeply personal relationships. But what does it mean to be friends, as Paul asked the, the children earlier, what does it mean to be friends on a global scale? What does it mean to be friends with the world? To be friends with the world of such beauty and fruitfulness and creativity and joy and a world of such pain and destructiveness and violence and evil. I mean, this week we've witnessed the horrific violence in Israel and now in Gaza. Uh, we witnessed the pain in our own neighborhoods. People who've been displaced, people who don't have a, a safe place to call home. So, what does it mean to be friends with the world? Can we? Should we? Yes? No? And what is the cost? Well, the story the Bible is telling starts back in Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the world. And the writer of Genesis 1 tells us that on the sixth day, God saw what God had created and saw that it was very good, abundant, peaceful, healthy. You don't have to read very far on into the story, though, before humans utterly corrupt the world that God had created. Just six chapters later, the start of the story of Noah, we're told now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. But God doesn't give up. And just another six chapters later, chapter 12, God calls Abram and Sarah and blesses them, blesses their family, blesses them for a purpose, though. Blesses the, them so that in them, through them, by them, 
all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so in this really short span, the first 12 chapters of the whole Bible, you have a world that's very good. You have sin that's corrupting, corroding, contagious, it seems. And you have this promise of hope. And so right from the start, the heavens and the earth, the world is the place, the space where this relationship between creator and creation is lived out, where God's intention and our response is lived out. And at times, it is a winsome relationship of delight and gratitude and faithfulness and peace. We heard it earlier in the words of the psalmist, rejoice in the Lord, the earth is full of the steadfast love of God. But other times, it is a deeply troubled relationship of rebellion, of injustice, of violence, of despair. And that's the world we still live in, isn't it? The world, the people, nature, civilizations, the earth itself. The world is still the place where this relationship of creator and creation is lived out. And I hope that there are moments when the sense, when you sense the wonders uh, and the winsomeness of God's work. But we all also know the moments, uh, the seasons, the ages, when it is a very troubled relationship. We see people in extreme poverty. We see nations warring against nations. Uh, we see the earth almost literally coming apart at the seams. The world is the place, the space, where this relationship between creator and creation is lived out. And all through the story the Bible's telling, the story that we are part of still, there has always been the profane temptation to exploit people and to exploit the earth. The temptation to be dishonest, to be destructive, to be selfish, to be cynical. And we end up with oppression and inequity and war and racism and refugees. And because the world can be a sinful, evil place, there has also always been the pious tendency to withdraw from it. So in the time of Jesus, the time of the Gospels, there were the Essenes, a Jewish sect who withdrew and lived in a community in the desert at Qumran. They, had separ they separated themselves from the worldliness of politics and the worldliness of religion. And on in church history, there was the monastic movement. Men and women sought holiness by separating themselves, in some cases cloistering themselves. In our own Anabaptist Mennonite tradition, we have a legacy of separatism, don't we? There's the kingdom of God, there's the kingdom of the world, and you choose one or you choose the other. Now, I'm not going to become Amish, but I do have to say there are days... When I'm so discouraged, so frustrated, that I am very tempted to sell everything and buy a boat. Buy like a 36-foot, maybe a 42-foot sailboat. Literally cut ties and set sail. I am tempted to become a citizen of the seas. The world is the place where this troubled relationship between creator, creation, is lived out. And the thing is, we see the, we see the tension right Right in the scriptures themselves. 
So John 3.16, I mean, if you, if you went to Sunday school, you probably, list, you probably um, memorized this verse, right? God so loved the world, the whole wide world. God so loved the whole wide world that God gave God's only begotten son. Just a little bit later, in the book of James, the apostle is so frustrated that the church has given in to the worldly ways that, uh, that uh, James writes, and this is chapter 4, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. But isn't this the same God that John just said loves the whole wide world? I mean, which is it? Pick a side here. I kind of like to get James and John together and say, work it out, will you? Help us out here. So I've been thinking about what it means to be friends with the world. Should we? Yes? No? No, all right. We have a winner. Hey, I got another 16 minutes of this sermon, so that's the answer, but I got to get there first, all right? And at what cost? Wow. This would be a much shorter service. I mean, the answer is yes, okay. The answer is no, too. So listen, hear me out. Hear me, hear me out. So 2 Corinthians 5. Uh, the writer, Paul. It's attributed to Paul, anyway. Paul writes of how the life and death and resurrection of Jesus changes the way that we live, that we understand, that we make sense of the world, and begins verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. Look, new things have come into being. In Christ, there is a new creation. Jesus makes possible a new way of living together. And not just later, not just in the life to come, but a new way to live together here and now in this life, in this world. By showing us what the love of God looks like, by assuring us of God's grace, God's amazing grace, God's forgiveness, God's mercy, by insisting on breaking down barriers, personal barriers, religious barriers, social, economic barriers, Jesus was making possible a new way of living together in the world. But it comes at a cost. Jesus embodied the perfect love of God, love that is so radical that it upended the old ways of the world. In the Gospels, Jesus said no to an economy that left people hungry. He said no to religion that left people isolated. He said no to politics that left people oppressed. Jesus fed people, forgave people, welcomed people, empowered people, and at the end of the gospel stories, it is too much. The powers that be, the religious powers, the economic powers invested in the system, the old system, the way it was, they arrested him and they tried him and they crucified him. The thing is, even at the end, Jesus said no. He said no to violence. He said no to anything that was not love. He broke the cycle. And even at the end, he forgave the ones who were killing him. Jesus embodied the love of God, and we, we humans, we killed him. So the death of Jesus stands still as a judgment on our human capacity in this world to hurt and to hate and to harm. It stands as a judgment on the sin that we still live with, on the sin that we still live in. But the love of God was and is stronger than sin or violence or death. God raised Christ from the dead. I love the way Clarence Jordan put it. I quoted him last Easter. God refused to 
take our no for an answer. God raised Christ from the dead, and the resurrection of Jesus is God's yes. God's yes to a new creation. God's yes to a new way of living together on the earth and with the earth. Yes to the work of reconciliation. Yes to the work of making the world and all who dwell therein whole and holy. Yes to being friends with the world. The world is still the place, still the space where this relationship of creator and creation is being lived out. The resurrection of Jesus makes it possible to live in a new way, a new way that's honest and hopeful uh, and maybe even holy. Frederick Beekner has always been a wise spiritual guide for me, put it this way. The grace of God means something like this. Here's the world. Beautiful things and terrible things will happen. Do not be afraid. I am with you. Nothing can ever separate us. Beautiful things and terrible things. Do not be afraid. God is with us. The spirit that called creation into being, the spirit that was in Christ Jesus, the spirit of God is with us always, everywhere. God says yes to being friends with the world. And we are called to say yes too. If we are friends with Jesus, then we are called to say yes to this new creation, yes to this work of reconciliation, yes to being friends with the world. And it seems to me that that means at least a couple of things. The first thing being friends with the world means is being honest, because the best friends are the most honest friends. They're the ones who will tell us the truth, right? So to be friends with the world, we have to be truthful about what's harmful, what's destructive in us and around us and, and through us. We have to be clear-eyed and open and humble and repentant and ready to say no. This week, we've all been following the news. On Saturday, well, a week ago yesterday, the horrific attack of Hamas into Israel, and now the horrifying attacks of the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force in Gaza. It's been stunning. It's been overwhelming. It's been confusing. What do we do? How do we pray? What do we hope for? What I've seen in the week since is that in this country, at least, there's a pretty fixed narrative about what's going on. And the truth is, you can watch Fox, you can watch MSNBC, you can listen to NPR. The narrative is pretty much the same. Israel is a victim of terrorism. Israel has a right to defend themselves. This country will stand with Israel. And there's truth to that narrative. But there is more truth to be told. And so it is important for us to listen to other voices, to other people, to other perspectives. And so uh, I prepared, it's, it's not in the bulletin, it's in the back, but I prepared a uh, copy of a handout that comes from Menopen. Menopen is the Mennonite Palestine Israel Network. And full disclosure, I'm on the steering committee. Um, it's a statement that we wrote uh, in response to the news and to the violence in the Holy Land. It also includes, and this is on the back, an essay from Jonathan Katab. Jonathan is a Palestinian uh, Christian. He's also a member of the steering committee. He's also the executive director of a group called Friends of 
Sabil, North America. And if you're not familiar with Sabil, Sabil is a, a group of Palestinian Christians in, in the Holy Land who are committed to nonviolence, who are committed to a theology of liberation. So these are going to be in the back on that table. Um, I hope you'll take one. I hope you'll read it. You might not agree with it. But if there's a dominant narrative that is accelerating the cycle of violence, it seems to me, as followers of Jesus, it is important for us to at least listen to other voices. Now, I want to be very clear. Israel, the people of Israel are victims of violence, the horrific, the indefensible violence by Hamas. But I also want to be clear, it didn't start last Saturday. This is only the latest cycle of violence. In earlier iterations, Palestinians have been victims of oppression and occupation and violence. Their homes have been destroyed. Their land has been taken and confiscated. Their children have been arrested by the IDF and held in military prisons. And now 1.1 million people are being told to flee northern Gaza to where no one quite knows. And the neighborhoods of innocent people are being leveled, and this country, our country, is adding fuel to the fire, and the cycle just becomes more deadly. If we're a friend of the world, then we have to say no. We cannot withdraw. We cannot be neutral. We cannot give in to violence or vengeance. We have to say no to Hamas when they kill and maim and humiliate and capture people. We have to say no to the IDF when they confiscate land and arrest children and level neighborhoods. We have to say no to the U.S. military when they ship weapons and move carrier groups into position and add fuel to the fire. And we have to say no to the temptation that lives in each of us, the temptation to commit violence, to support violence, or maybe even just to ignore acts of violence. To be ambassadors of reconciliation, we have to say no to violence. And I hope you will. I've been getting a lot of emails. I don't know if you have, but I want to encourage you, even if you haven't, to contact your legislators, our leaders in Washington, your representatives, your senators. Contact the White House and urge them to say no to this ongoing cycle of violence. Urge them to say yes to freedom, to liberation from oppression and injustice. If you uh, would like a little help figuring out what to say. Esther Nelson, who's part of a little nascent uh, Gaza group we have had here for a little while that kind of encouraged us to uh, link up with Yara when she was here. Esther's going to be in the back. So there's the Minnow Pen, Pen statement back there you can get from her. She'll also take your, um, your phone number uh, or your uh, email address and send a little bit of information. MCC, for example, has an um, encouragement to contact uh, our legislators for the sake of advocacy. So we'll put you in touch with that and I hope that you will, um, I hope you will follow up. To be a friend of the world means being honest. Second, it means being hopeful. Because the best friends are the ones who never give up on us. As followers of Jesus, the friend of the world, we say yes to hope. We say yes to the hope of a new creation. Yes to the hope of reconciliation. I hope that's what, what's wrong will be put right. Yes, to hope in the power of God's love to make the world whole and holy. St. Augustine uh, wrote this about hope. Hope has two beautiful daughters, 
Their names are anger and courage. Anger at the way things are and courage to see that they do not remain the way they are. Hope has two daughters, anger and courage. There is a lot to be angry about. In fact, if you're not angry, I don't think you're paying enough attention. And not just in distant places. I mean, in our own neighborhoods, in our own hearts. We ought to be angry that there are so many people living on the streets. We ought to be angry that there's so many guns in our cities. We ought to be angry that we can't find the political will to respond to global climate change. We ought to be angry at the way things are. As followers of Jesus, though, we also have to be courageous to see that they do not remain the way they are. So I hope you will contact our leaders in Washington this week. As you've heard, next week is the MCC relief sale. Support the relief and development, peacemaking work of Mennonite Central Committee. Next Sunday, and there's an announcement in the bulletin, there's going to be a panel discussion at 11 with people who courageously said no to military service. And then the week after that, so that's October 29th, our Climate Justice Committee is going to host a plant-based potluck and talk about responding personally, locally, to climate change. I hope you'll join in the work of our uh, Racial Justice Committee. And soon enough, I'm sure there'll be opportunities for us again to host families here who are shifting from homelessness to housing as part of the Family Promise Metro East program. Say yes to hope. Be angry and be courageous. As friends of Jesus, the answer is yes, whoever said it earlier. The answer is yes. Let us be friends of the world. May God grant us the courage we need. Amen.